This is Sustainable-ish with me, Jen Gale, and it is great to have you here. Listen in each week and I hope I can brighten up your day and leave you feeling inspired and excited about the magnificent human being that you are and the power that you have to create a better world. You won't find any expectations of eco-warrior perfection here. There's no obligatory tree hugging. You won't be judged if you drive a car, wear leather shoes, or eat the odd pack of Haribo every now and then. I'll be sharing my own gems of wisdom for sustainable-ish living, and I also relentlessly scour the internet for people doing amazing things to tackle the big environmental issues that we're facing, and I hound them until they agree to come on and inspire us all with their fabulousness and the positive change that they're making. So sit back, listen in, and get ready to change the world one baby step at a time. Hello, hello. How are you doing? Welcome back to Sustainable-ish. Hot? (laughs) You probably are if you're listening to this on the day that this episode is going out. We are having some weird weather, aren't we? We're all feeling it, I think. I'm recording this intro in a week where it's been 33 degrees here in the southwest of the UK. And when Joe and I recorded this actual podcast at the end of June, we were both wearing jumpers. There's quite a difference. Add to that the cold, cold May we had this year, the really hot, warm, hot, I don't know which one, spring we had the year before in the first lockdown. And does anyone remember a couple of years ago when it hit, I don't know, something like 20 degrees in February and everyone was wandering around in t-shirts eating ice creams? I think most people have noticed the weird weather, but maybe not everyone has joined the dots just yet and realised that this is it. This is the climate changing. We can no longer expect the defined and reasonably reliable seasonal changes of previous generations. We are now living with a very changeable and unpredictable climate, the implications of which go way beyond us or me tutting at having to wear a jumper in June. So listen in to this chat with Joe Shute, a journalist and author of a book called Forecast, A Diary of the Lost Seasons, where we do that most British of all things and discuss the weather. Enjoy. Hello, Joe. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you for having me. Sorry, you just caught me taking a swig of tea then. Um, Really lovely to have you. Um, Can you introduce yourself? Sure. So my name is uh, Joe Shute. Uh, I'm a Sheffield-based author and journalist. Uh, My day job is I'm a a feature writer on the Daily Telegraph newspaper and uh, I write nature books for Bloomsbury. Uh, And this book, Forecast, A Diary of the Lost Seasons, which uh, came out last week, is my second book. The first one I wrote was called A Shadow Above, and it was about ravens and our connection with ravens and this sort of interesting history of the birds and how they're sort of perceived through folklore. And uh, Forecast is a sort of similar read, really. It's about um, folklore and weather lore and our our relationship with the seasons, this sort of... um, uh, intangible thing that dictates so much of our lives. And you 
do you still write a weekly column? You had a weekly column on the Telegraph about weather, didn't you? I do, yeah. For, uh, so I've been at the Telegraph since 2012 and pretty much for all of that time, um, I've written uh, the weekly Weather Watch column, um, which is it's only a small couple of hundred words uh, column on the back page of the Saturday paper. And it's existed long before me and I'm sure it will exist long after I've uh, gone. <laughs> And uh, it's a bit of a sort of, it's a weird kind of institution on the paper. When I was first given the column, my, my, wedi- uh, my editor's sort of cryptic instruction to me was to write about anything but the weather. And uh, considering that the column's called Weather Watch, that left me sort of scratching my head yeah. a bit about what she meant. But it slowly sort of became clear over time. It's about sort of writing about the folklore of the weather and about the sort of kind of how the weather sort of changes through the year and the things that change as a result of of, of the weather and above all it's a it's a sort of about a conversation about it it's obviously something that all of us love talking about uh I think it's a uniquely sort of or a particularly British thing that we do and certainly compared to anything else I write about for the paper uh the amount of correspondence I get for the weather watch column is <laughs> it's incomparable at times it's very depressing i'll have you know a big piece in the saturday magazine <laughs> poured my heart into spent like months researching it and uh you know a couple of comments on twitter but the weather column i've got a folder and it's literally has hundreds and hundreds of letters they're all sorts of beautifully handwritten letters and it's people talking about their own experiences of the weather and increasingly mm as the years have gone by and as the column's gone on, increasingly people telling me their own sort of um, observations of how the weather is changing and mm. what climate change is doing on a very personal, very sort of localised level. So, you know, noticing flowers that um, are starting to come out at odd times or, or, or birds arriving mm. at odd times or in some cases not arriving at all when they have done for, for, for many, many decades. Yeah. So I had this kind of, and I still have this sort of growing stack of amazing observations from all over the country. And uh, that really formed the basis of the book. I thought, you know, I want to kind of investigate this and, and give life to some of these letters and sort of explain to readers how, aside from the sort of extreme weather events that we see, and I've covered many of them as a journalist, you know, flooding, wildfire, et cetera, how climate change, this sort of loaded um, term that puts people off in equal mm. measure as it, you know, kind of makes people lose hope and stuff. But how is climate change changing our every day? And how is it changing the passage of the seasons as we know and understand them? So yeah. that's the basis for the book. So I think there's a lot of confusion sometimes between weather and climate. So can you just explain, because I think when we talk about climate change um we're recording this it's nearly the end of june we've both got jumpers on i've just taken (laughs) off my cardi do you know like it's it's not warm um and you'll get people going bloody global warming no such thing it's freezing cold like i'd love a bit of global warming like how we you've just said you know as brits we love to talk about the weather we're really not keen on talking about climate change what's the difference between the weather and climate so the climate obviously is the kind of um, the, the sort of atmospheric conditions around us. And it's what we're seeing when you talk about global warming. It's, it's talking about the warming of the overall climate. So you can see any number of projections that 
the global countries have agreed to to to, to restrict it to um, I think it's two two degrees off the top of my head, uh, and it already looks like it's going mm. well beyond that. The, the difference with weather really is how that sort of those atmospheric conditions play out on a much uh, on a sort of lower down in the atmosphere and how that changes weather patterns around the world. Mm. Uh, in Britain, what we're seeing uh, is it means more rain and more extreme rainfall events, much more likelihood for heat waves, much uh, warmer winters. And there was a recent Met Office report that was out that said by 2060 only very sort of mountainous and northern regions of Britain uh, are likely to see any settled snow mm. at all and uh, it also means increased risk of of drought and wildfire and sort of unusual things happening at any any time of year when my uh, after the book um, or just before the book was published the Telegraph magazine serialized it and uh, I got uh, kind of put on a few sort of climate change denier blogs as I have done uh, many times uh, before over the years writing writing this column and people were talking about this very cold spring we've just had mm-hmm. as uh, exactly as, as you've just said Jen you know how can we how can uh, things be warming up when you know we've just had this sort of we haven't had a spring have we mm. we've just <laughs> kind of different layers of jumpers we've been yeah. wearing and uh, the point is that it sort of leads to unusual weather on, on both sides of it, really. And unu- just as likely as, we, as it makes a sort of winter without snow, it can make uh, a, a, a very cold spring. You know, it's, 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 it's sort of disrupting that natural passage of, of the year uh, that are sort of that we've evolved alongside and also that, that nature has as well. Mm. Now, the, the tagline of the book is a diary of the lost seasons. And I... And that's what drew me in because I think it feels to me like we're losing the seasons. Like it's all sort of merging into one. You know, every spring it sort of freaks me out how early the daffodils are coming out. And mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember, was it, I think, I can't remember, I don't think it was last year. It might have been the year before. We had a really warm February and it was like, you know, we were in t shirts eating ice cream and it was lovely because it was nice and warm, but it was also this this is it the cognitive dissonance where your brain is like this isn't right this shouldn't be happening but I was like well is this just because you talk in the book about is it nostalgia and this or nostalgia nostalgia this you know this sort of recalling things as they weren't really and you know thinking oh well we used to have lovely warm summers and we used to have nice cold winters and and this sort of merging of it and is it just me thinking that because I'm you know background freaking out about climate change and um, but actually to be like no this 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 is happening this has been documented mm-hmm. this is what we're seeing it was reassuring in a not very reassuring way if that makes sense <laughs> <laughs> yeah I tried to write a lot in the book about nostalgia because I think that's very important with how we perceive the weather and the seasons uh, so there was a, a study um, released by some uh, academics from King's College London a couple of years ago, and they looked into exactly this, the extent to which adverse weather conditions um, provokes feelings of nostalgia. Uh, so what they did, they got various participa- uh, participants and played them sounds of like uh, peals of thunder and lightning and sort of stormy sounds and got them to sort of jot down how it made them feel. And they also gave them weather diaries as well, which is something I've kept myself for uh, for years and years, you know, uh, n- noting down sort of column ideas and, and so on. 
Uh, and these weather diaries that people are asked to just jot down their mood every day and uh, jot down also, you know, just kind of how they were feeling, what they were thinking about, stuff like that. When they submitted them to the academics, they then compared them to the meteorological data of that period of time. And according to the report, the, the, the finding was clear. It was, yes, um, we sort of, when the weather is, is uh, unfamiliar or, you know, doing something mm. sort of we find scary, we retreat into a nostalgic version of how things should be. And the point I try and make in the book is it's so easy to do that and uh, we should be careful, you know, um, because it's sort of Britain's position where we are, you know, moored uh, of continental Europe and kind of assailed by whatever the Atlantic Ocean throws our way and whatever mm. sort of polar winds drift in from the north. And we've never had, you know, this kind of idea of the, port, the four perfect seasons are very much fiction. Mm. And uh, it's one, it's a trick that our own minds play on us as well, because we, you, you tend to remember, it's just natural, you tend to remember whether at its most sort of idealised. So, you know, mm. we, we can all remember those perfect summer days as kids. Um, and, uh, you know, I've, I've such clear, I grew up in, in North London and I've such clear memories as a kid, as sort of walking to school on those crisp, beautiful autumn mm. mornings, looking through big piles of, London plain leaves in my new trainers and trying to scuff them up a bit. <laughs> the snow days, obviously, you know, everyone yeah. the snow days because it's, it's, it's an event. It's a big deal. And that we sort of forget everything in between those, you know, all the kind of yes. damp, dreary. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. all the sorts of summers that weren't really. I mean, if you look at the, the sort of weather data, July and August are some of the rainiest months we have. In the oh, year. really? Uh, yeah. And we somehow block them out. And uh, so I kind of wanted to be, you know, to make that distinction between climate change is obviously happening. The seasons are changing in very unfamiliar ways. And our weather is, is changing in ways that we haven't seen before. But equally, this idea that everything was perfect and mm. now in the past 50 years, uh, it's, it's all started to get mixed up just, just isn't true. Um, we've, uh, for, for sort of good and for bad, uh, the British weather has always been uh, a precocious thing. <laughs> <laughs> so what evidence have we got that the seasons are changing? If we're not, remem you know, if we're remembering falsely how set and defined they used to be, how, mm. uh, how, what evidence have we got that, that they are not how they used to be? The, the two main bodies of, of evidence I use and look at for, for the book. Um, the first uh, uh, weather stations, you know, we have in this uh, country a huge network of weather stations set up around um, Britain. They started as a in the uh, late 19th century as a result of, I say 19th century, maybe it was the 18th century off the top of my head. It was a, it was a result of this huge storm that sort of devastated ships around Britain. And uh, it was the worst, the, the sort of greatest death toll of any storm ever in Britain recorded. And uh, as a result, it was a man called uh, Admiral Fitzroy, who um, uh, is famous for taking Darwin on his uh, HMS Beagle uh, around South America on his um, uh, journeys when he sort of began the foundations for his theories of evolution. Fitzroy was tasked with coming up with a, a way of sort of um, somehow predicting these storms um, should uh, they hit again. And he, yeah, he, he came up with the forecast. Um, it was in 1861, off the top of my head, was when the first ever newspaper forecast was printed. Wow. And, uh, 
in the summer. We're coming up to the anniversary of it, in fact. And um, it sort of grew from there. And uh, we have, I mean, it, the, 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 the data these stations have amassed over that time is, uh, is incredibly, you know, rich mm. in terms of telling us what's happened. Where I live in Sheffield, one of the oldest weather stations in the country is um, positioned in uh, Western Park. And um, uh, I spent a lot of time talking to uh, the uh, staff monitoring that station, looking through some of their old ledgers. It was set up in 1882, this station. And uh, initially it was because the Sheffield Corporation, as it was then, uh, was uh, starting to see these sorts of outbreaks of various uh, very unpleasant diseases all over mm. the city. And they wanted to investigate whether there was some sort of link between the weather and that. Oh, wow. Um, so they set up this station there and uh, they had a local man called Elijah Howarth was the first guy in charge of it. And he soon got this uh, nickname locally as Elijah the Prophet for his <laughs> um, forecasting ability. <laughs> and uh, that was in 1882 and it's still in existence today. It's been an official Met Office weather station since the 1890s. And they've still got the original ledgers that uh, Elijah Howarth would, um, he'd go out four times a day and jot down what the weather was doing, you know, how deep the snow mm. was and so on. And uh, obviously it's all digitised now, but um, yeah, the museum still had these beautiful sort of leather-bound ledgers. And uh, what that data sets like that tell us is that, um, firstly, the weather is cyclical, as we've, as we've touched on already. The weather changes naturally, you know, it's not, it's not sort of everything's um, kind mm. of perfect every year. You have decades where it's drier than usual, you have decades where it's wetter than usual. Um, but what they show without a doubt is that um, it's not just getting wetter, but these extreme weather events are becoming far more uh, common and mm -hmm. also the, the, the increasing temperatures as well. Just to take one year as an example, 2019 was uh, the wettest year in, in uh, the entire existence of the weather station. It also recorded the hottest day ever. And that was, on its, that was in July 2019. And that was its 50,000th first day of recording uh, was the record July day. And that year we saw um, uh, later in the year in November, it was the wettest November mm. on record. Beat the previous record that was set in 2000 um, with half the month still to go. And that was the year that we saw dreadful flooding along the River Don in uh, Fish Lake in Doncaster, you may remember, just before the general election, where residents were flooded out there for, for, for a good couple of days. So that's the one side. You've got these kind of scientific data sets. And then the other side that tells us how the uh, weather is changing and the influence that's having on the seasons is something called phenology. Um, which some listeners may be aware of. It's a, it's a sort of old branch of science, originally started by a Belgian guy in the 18th century and then kind of really sort of popularised in the 19th century. And it's, um, it's the studying of the passage of the seasons through nature. Oh, wow. It goes right back to these letters from readers I was talking about at the start of this, of, you know, people's own observations and how that feeds into a wider pattern. And uh, Britain has an incredible um, phonology network. It used to be uh, run by the Royal uh, Meteorological Society. And it's um, uh, until the Second World War, they had the kind of national recorder network. And it's nowadays run by uh, the Woodland Trust. It's called Nature's Calendar. And uh, it has people all over the country feeding their observations in. And anyone listening to this, I'd, I'd urge them to get involved. It's a great thing to do. I was going to say, is that something we can get involved with? So we can go and say, 
oh just seen daffodils and it's this time of year or just seen you know Absolutely. oh wow yeah, it's crucial so it's like to citizen it's science yeah and it's it's a lovely particularly at the moment you know not many of us going anywhere it's a great mm. time for it. and once you start doing it um you get really into it because you every year you know things change so yeah. you kind of you keep a diary, you can log it online of the first time you hear a particular bird singing, you know, a song like the Chiff Chaff, for example, a real sort of evocative bird of, some, of spring, the first time you hear I'm going to make you do the Chiff Chaff sound. I've got no idea what that would sound like. What does a Chiff That's Chaff sound That's very easy. I'm hopefully not going to have to mimic too much bird song today, but uh, <laughs> the Chiff Chaff just says its own name. Oh, does it? Over and over and over again. So it oh, goes, okay. Chaff, Chiff Chaff. And, Brilliant. Uh, yeah, I won't a... make you do a blackbird or anything, really. <laughs> With my last Raven book, the amount of people who asked me to do Raven impressions. And, uh, <laughs> Come on then, we can't let that one go. Let's have a Raven. Oh, God. Okay, imagine somewhere between a barking dog and a, a sort of well-fed pig. And it kind of goes, oh, 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 like that. That's brilliant. I love it. You could take that on the stage. So, yeah, so phonology is um, kind of tells us through all these different observations, you know, all these individual sorts of things all over the country, through that we can follow the passage of the seasons, particularly spring. And it's incredibly exact, even though it's based on all these loose observations. When you put all of that together, it shows you the speed uh, at which mm. um, spring is traveling and also the direction as well. So spring begins in the southwest of the country and moves up in a northeasterly direction. And uh, what's been happening in recent decades, what, what the, the, the records show is that spring is speeding up. Um, so uh, it now, uh, it takes about three weeks to cover the whole country and it is moving uh, nine days faster uh, than it did just a few decades ago. So it's arriving nine days earlier and then still taking three weeks or it's arriving at the same time and moving quicker or both? Both. It's arriving nine days earlier and moving quicker. Okay. Overall, when you look at the overall passage of spring, it's yeah. nine days earlier than it used to be. So why does it really matter? Like, do you know, I, nine days of extra spring sounds quite good to me. Um, <laughs> nice to see the daffodils a bit earlier, hear the chiff chaffs, whatever. Like, do, why does it matter if the weather's changing? Yeah, I mean, it's a very good question. And it's really, that's the sort of question I try and get at in the book. Because in many ways, you know, the seasons are a man-made thing. And the, the, the four seasons are very, in terms of human history, they're very recent. This really surprised me researching the book, actually. But it's only really in the kind of 14th century that the, the four seasons, as we understand them, start to be really popularised. It was people like Chaucer and Shakespeare and so on. Okay. We would uh, mention autumn and spring. We traditionally, the old Anglo-Saxon way of seeing the year was just two seasons. We had a, a light season and a dark season okay. and split by sort of six months each. So if, you know, if, if a, a, a data set shows spring arriving nine days earlier, as you say, why does that matter? In the terms of nature, it matters because everything has evolved along uh, what are called seasonal pulses. And um, it's all kind of a very finely tuned thing. So flowers emerge at certain times, insects emerge to feed upon those flowers. Mm. And birds, particularly migratory birds, time their arrivals. So the conditions are just right basically for them to be able to breed uh, successfully rear their young mm. and sort of fatten up enough to 
uh, be able to fly back again to wherever it is that, that they've come from. And uh, what we're seeing now because of um, things like spring sp uh, speeding up and winter sort of bleeding into autumn as well. So obviously last winter was, was, was quite a cold one, but all the same, uh, there's a, um, uh, the, the uh, Botanical Society of Britain and Ireland do something every year called a New Year plant hunts where they send volunteers out all over the country in the first couple of days of the new year. Uh, again, if, if your listeners or viewers wanted to, to get into this, it's a really fun thing to do. I joined them uh, for oh, cool. a chapter research in the book. And you basically go out on a, uh, a New Year's Day walk and you have a look at what flowers you can actually see in bloom. And uh, this year, even in a cold year now, they recorded a record 710 different species of flower in bloom. And how many would we normally expect that time of year? That number's gone up by, uh, they've been doing it for 10 years, and I think that number's gone up by good 100 or so. Wow. So uh, it's a lot. Mm. So insects are adapting to that. And what we're seeing then is it's beginning to really impact on bird populations. So BTO, the British Trust for Ornithology, did a, a big study that was out in 2019, and it said climate change is now impacting on one third of all uh, British bird populations. Wow. And that's looking at you know, long-term impact as well. Uh, it's not always in a, in a negative way. Um, smaller species like long-tailed tits or wrens or, or goldcrest, they're doing increasingly well now because these warmer winters mean they don't die off in a number. Okay, yeah. I'm sure uh, people watching this will, will know uh, ring-neck parakeets and uh, they're spreading, uh, they're doing very well spreading around the country. In Glasgow, they're now... Uh, got the most northerly flock of parrots in the whole world. Oh, wow. <laughs> and uh, so some, there's, you know, there's winners and losers in, in all this stuff. Um, but generally, it is particularly on migratory birds, it's, it's, it's having a very bad impact. And then just finally, when, when you talk about if it matters or not, one uh, or, or types of species that are being really badly affected are um, species that hibernate or brumate in some way, you know, mm. go into a period of dormancy over the winter. Um, again, that's something that's evolved in sort of in tandem with what the weather is likely to do at any given year. Uh, and we see with some species now, dormice are a particularly badly affected species. And uh, they, um, they're, they're obviously a rodent, but unlike all other rodents, they don't have any oils in their fur. And they're beautiful, soft. I went out um, as part of the research with a, a dormouse monitoring group in Surrey. And okay. we were looking at the dormouse we could find that was still sleeping during the day and uh, we found we spent a whole day searching this woods where there was meant to be a load of the populations we only found that one single dormice, uh, dormice in one of these nesting boxes and one yeah. of the volunteers took it out and uh, I, I got to hold it in the palm of my hand just for a few seconds it was this beautiful soft thing yeah. and you could hear it snoring as well oh. just, <laughs> uh, Lewis Carroll mm. it was wonderful but their dormice are really badly affected because they're so small. They need to fatten up to a certain amount before they go into their, their period of dormancy. And then they need to, if they wake up too early and there's no food available, they don't have the fat reserves to rely on. So what we're seeing now is you'll have a warm period in winter, which we get every winter now, mm. even cold ones. And they wake up and they venture out and, and, and everything hasn't done what it's meant mm. to be doing. So that really affects them. Uh, adders too um, can, are really badly affected by it. They obviously rely as reptiles, they rely on uh, basking and mm. soaking up 
the heat and they need enough of a prolonged period of heat to get to, uh, for the males particularly, they ripen their sperm in the heat and they need okay. to get uh, the, the sort of right temperatures for that. So again, what we're seeing is them coming out of hibernation earlier for another part of the book, went out with an adder expert. And uh, he told me now, you know, you wouldn't normally, back when he started 20 years ago, you wouldn't expect the adders coming out until uh, late March, April time of, uh, of brumation. And now he's seen them out in every calendar month. Wow. Yeah. Adders on Boxing Day in his part of the Malvern Hills. And that sort of, that has a real impact on, combined with everything else, you know, it's not a, a single thing. Mm. Particularly with birds, it's combined with habitat loss and adders too. And also kind of, you know, this, these increased floods, wildfires and stuff, that really impacts on uh, on, on, on nature as well. Um, mm. so, so yes, it is having um, a very big impact. And playing devil's advocate here, and I suspect probably not anyone who's listening to this is going to think that, but there might be people thinking, okay, again, so what? Does, like... Does it matter if the adders are coming out a bit early? Does it like dormice are really cute, but does it matter if we've got fewer of them? How does that impact? This feels such a horrible question to ask, and it's just like, how does that impact us? Yeah, no, it's a, that is a it's an important question to us, you know. And it's the two things I kind of I, I really want to do in this book, and I've noticed this writing my weather column over the years as well. Is I'm, I'm sure you'll know as well, Jen. It can become any talk of climate change and, you know, it can become very polarised mm. and you can turn people off very quickly as well. And ultimately it's something that, you know, you don't need to be a lover of nature to, uh, to be worried about this. Mm. And it doesn't make you, you know, a, a bad person or whatever, if you're not like that. And I've, I've always tried to do that in my weather column and in my, in my weather writing. I've really tried to do it in this book as well, you know, to keep it as open and accessible mm. as possible, to ask and answer questions like that, and also to keep it hopeful wherever we can. Yes. You know, keep people thinking that this, they can do stuff. And, mm. uh, and uh, yeah, so um, you need to remind me of the question again. Why does, it, why does it matter if we've got fewer door mice or adders coming out a bit earlier? Like... Uh, yeah, okay. So... Um, I mean, we're, we're sort of living through these two crises. Mm. There's the, the, the climate change crisis, which is um, looming and, and, and magnifying all the time. And there's this biodiversity crisis as well. Um, and I think it's, it's often easy to, to, to forget the biodiversity crisis mm. and that the solutions to both of those things lie together as well. And I'll give you an example of that in a minute. But firstly, why it matters is because of humans' continued impact on the planet, animals of all stripes and sizes are suffering sort of um, unprecedented pressure on mm. their habitat. So already they're um, struggling to, dormice for example, are really reliant on ancient woodlands mm. uh, to, uh, to live in. They, have, uh, they, they weave their nests out of um, old bluebell stalks and honeysuckle oh, wow. stalks and yeah. they, the, the, the sorts of food that they rely on is particularly prevalent in ancient woodlands. So they're already suffering as a result of that. You know, things like HS2 that's just kind of mm, down through mm. native woodlands uh, up and down the country. And then at the same time, they have this increased pressure on them as, as, as a result of, um, as a result of, uh, of climate change mm. as well. And uh, that, that's just one example of, you know, countless ones where if you look at the sort of numbers of species, um, you'll know this already, but, you know, if you look at the numbers of species that, are at risk of uh, extinction, you know, red-listed species at the moment. Mm. 
Um, in the bird world, we have things, really, really well-loved species, you know, things like curlew, uh, lapwing, cuckoo, turtle dove, mm. skylark. These are birds that, even if you don't, even if you're not into birds, these are birds that, if you're out on a country walk, they are the, the soundtrack to that walk. And people will hear it. They may not know it's a skylark, but they'll hear that sort of beautiful bubbling, mm. rising sounds, and it will evoke memories, and it will evoke, you know, a, a connection to the land, an attachment to the land. And uh, we're at risk. We stand at risk of losing all of that. So, so that's kind of why, why it matters. Um, and, uh, and then on a more prosaic level in terms of um, the, the sort of extreme weather events is because, you know, it's threatening our communities now as mm. well. And if you just take, in terms of a solution and a, a hopeful solution, if you just take one example near me, which is uh, peatland and uh, this very rare precious habitat, which... Um, is uh, incredibly um, useful in mm. all manner of ways and has become very degraded over the last sort of century or so. Uh, and there's a solution to all three of those things, you know, the, the climate change, the biodiversity crisis and the impact on neighbourhoods just in, 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 in that bit. And we're seeing that already. So there's big work to re-wet uh, peatlands in mm. the peatlands and elsewhere. And uh, what that does is firstly, it, in terms of the impact on neighbourhoods and, and communities, it uh, stops flooding further downstream. Um, okay, yeah. The bogs uh, are wetter, return to their more natural state. Um, they were drained in the uh, in the post-war era, um, and uh, it, was, it was sort of seeing a way as you could fill, get water quicker down into reservoirs, and that would be oh, okay. Yeah, people to have their water supplies. And uh, what they've realised is by doing that, it makes them much more it makes the communities below those upper moors much more susceptible to flooding because when it rains the water just runs off mm. and deluges places below. That was what we saw with the floods in Doncaster that I mentioned in 2019. So there's work to re-wet these wetlands, which not just helps uh, protect people against flooding, but it also protects people against wildfire as well. Um, so after the huge wildfire of 2018 on Saddleworth Moor, um, which I've covered for the Telegraph, I was there on the day and sort of at the time it was pre-COVID and they gave us all uh, surgical mask to wear when mm. we got because the air was so bad and I remember thinking this is bizarre and now we're going to go <laughs> <used> to it <laughs> early taste of what was to come yeah but a year after that so on the anniversary of that fire I went back up to Saddleworth Moor to see how these re-wetted moorlands had helped uh, stop the fire get worse than it already was and it was amazing where so there was a bit where the moorland hadn't been re-wetted and a bit where it had. And going back a year on, you could see it as a definite line all the way along this tract of ground. And it was where the, the, the wet moor, and it's particularly this thing called uh, sphagnum moss, uh, which soaks up like eight times its body weight. Wow. And these amazing sort of natural sponges. And they provided this perfect fire break. So that stopped the fire in its tracks. Sadly, it had already burnt mm. 1,000 hectares of Wow. Uh, degraded moorland by then so it's doing that you know it's it's, it's sort of acting as a sort of you know uh, at its most basic level it's protecting uh kind of human communities but then by creating that sort of more natural uh feature returning the land to what it was it's also having a huge um benefit on nature and uh the um the rspb that monitor that bit of saddleworth more that i'm talking about that had been Rewetted. Uh, they've seen um, populations of really threatened birds, moorland birds like uh, golden plover, 
Dunlin, Curlew that I've already mentioned, um, they're seeing their numbers increase year on year on year because they've got this more natural habitat. Mm. And the insect life, they're seeing much greater insect life there. Things like crane fly, you know, this tiny little thing that we wouldn't even notice, but there's sort of so much life depends on that. Sort, oh, sort wow. of, yeah. They're, they're doing uh, fantastically well there as well. And then a, on top of all of that, what you've got is by creating it as this natural, going back to its natural habitat, it's restored the peatland to a carbon sink as mm. well, which is what it should be. You know, something that soaks up the carbon, takes it out the atmosphere. And it's become so degraded elsewhere, moorlands and bits of Britain, that it's actually, rather than being a sink, it's an emitter of carbon. Yeah. Um, but when it doesn't do that, it soaks it all up. So across the peat dish as a whole, I think the figures are like, it can soak up like, I should probably check this. I've got it in the book. <laughs> But it's, it's a lot. A lot. It's like <laughs> tons worth. And uh, yeah. So, I mean, it can. Do you want me to check this or not? No, How... no, no, that's fine. Um, we'll just say a lot. So, yeah, yeah you can, th th these solutions exist, though. One of the things that you talk about in the book as well, and, and I think it's really important that we mention is that you know, we said how obsessed we are with the weather here in the UK and how we've noticed just as lay people, the sort of seasonal changes and we're all, you know, lots of people would have been unfortunate enough to suffer with flooding and things like that. But here in the UK, what we're experiencing is a much milder version of what people in other parts of the world are experiencing in terms of the way that their weather is changing. And that's still you know that's going to have a massive knock-on impact on us as well can you talk a little bit about some of the I guess scarier changes maybe that are taking place in other parts of the world yeah so a few years ago for the um, Telegraph I went to do a story um, in the Sahel which is in um, sub-Saharan Africa and it's the belt that runs uh, from coast to coast just below the Sahara Desert I'm particularly focused on a country uh, called Chad, where there's a lake, Lake Chad, that was once one of the biggest lakes in Africa, and it's disappeared by 95% wow. um, since the 60s. And uh, it's, um, you know, it's, it was once a huge water body, and it's just, it was always very shallow, but it's just disappearing, it's burning away. And uh, there's a, a project called the Great Green Wall, which aims to sort of plant trees all along that um, belt of the Sahel, to sort of create a barrier to the Sahara Desert. Because what mm. we're seeing is temperatures increase, the desert is, or desertification is increasing as well. So the desert is, is sort of gobbling up more mm. and more communities, farmlands, lakes, watercourses, yeah. just turning them into desert. It's happening sort of frighteningly quickly. And uh, it, it's a part of the world where the climate has warmed the fastest since the 70s. And um, it was so striking being there you know, meeting people who um, living entirely sort of as we once did in, did in Britain, you know, entirely dependent on the seasons for mm. survival, for uh, if the rains don't come at a certain time, you yeah. know, you can't, you can't grow food. And, and if the lake dries up and you're a fisherman, as many people were, um, then there's no more fish to yeah. catch. Um, so there's huge uh, climate refugee camps. Mm. Um, and I say climate, they're not just because what, what you've seen there is how climate change has sort of fed into wider um, unrest as well. So when we were there, it's an incredibly dangerous part of the world for anyone to be. And uh, the trip had actually been called off a few times previously. We travelled out with the UN. 
And uh, it's where Boko Haram is right on the border with northern Nigeria. And it's where Boko Haram are um, at their most sort of active. Mm. And um, because of, you know, you've got loads of young men who literally have zero prospects. They, their dads would have been fishermen mm. and uh, th there's no fish for them to catch. And you have sort of Boko Haram agents touring through areas, you know, offering money for people to join up to, to, to this group. And then they also just do kind of, you know, awful raids on villages and just sort of um, kind of pillage and kill mm. and rape and, you know, in the night and, and people are sort of driven into these refugee camps. So it's a real sort of place where sort of climate change and wider problems mm. are sort of, you know, festering together. And yeah, I mean, that all along that bit of the Sahel is where you're seeing a mass sort of exodus of refugees towards the West because, yeah. you know, in, part, in, these, in, in a lot of parts of uh, those areas, it's becoming almost unlivable. So you do, anyone would, you know, you try and search out um, yeah. somewhere else to go. And uh, I think that kind of notion of climate refugees, um, we're going to see yeah. more and more uh, as, as, as the, the years go by. And it's really why, you know, even if Britain, the, it, it's in no way that extreme yet in terms of, of, of the impact on what's, what's happening. Uh, you know, we're protected by the sort mm. of wealth of our countries in, in that mm, sense. Yeah. That there's no country that's going to escape this because there'll be all sorts of other aspects of it which will impact yeah. us directly or, or, or indirectly. I mean, there are, you know, tracts of the fertile land, fresh water, all these things are going to become increasingly scarce resources. And as you say, that leads into sort of civil unrest and, and war. And, and I think, didn't you say in the book about that, you know, the, the civil war in Syria being partly driven by changes in the weather and changes in climate? Oh, yeah, there was a record drought there or something, wasn't there, at the time when it when it sort of started. Um, mm. yeah, I mean, with, with, with all these things, you, you know, there's kind of other things at play as well, but then the weather sort of feeds into that, definitely. Yeah. The thing that really struck me in the Sahel as well was, you know, I was there for a, a good couple of weeks, travelled from Chad to Senegal, and uh, so right along where that sort of bank of the Great Green Wall is, interviewing people along the way. And the thing that struck me is these are the people with the, the lowest carbon footprint yeah. on earth. You know, the, the fishermen that lived on the banks of, of the Lake Chad, you know, grew all their own food, caught all their own food. Mm. Or did. Uh, now it's World Food Programme, you know, kind of handouts yeah, where they can yeah, get yeah. them. And uh, that was never went anywhere else, you know, roamed across these fashion. That was it. That was their life. And yeah. it's, they're being sort of the most disproportionately affected by uh, these rising emissions as well that they've had the least to do with. And um, yeah, that was just something very, um, something very sort of sad and unfair that struck me about it. And it's, it feels like these kind of you know, apocalyptic, almost, you know, Mad Max type, that feels like that's kind of where that's heading, doesn't it? And do you find it difficult? I think one of the potential issues that we have is that with something like plastic pollution it's quite easy to see a cause and effect isn't it but with climate it's so much more difficult isn't it we can't see that it was very difficult to see that the sort of the lifestyles that we're leading here in the developing in the developed worlds developed countries are you know having such a massive impact on these people who as you say have contributed very little to that it's it's quite difficult to join the dots isn't it I don't know how we make that 
easier or more accessible for people? Do you have any thoughts on that? I think with uh, plastic pollution, for example, it's, it's easier to look at that on a more personal mm. level, you know, and you look at, we all do it. We look at the plastics we produce every week and chuck in the recycling bin and stuff. And, uh, and it makes you, you know, think a lot of the owner so far has been, you know, what can individuals mm. do wrongly in my opinion you know yeah I, I think it needs to be higher than that but I think climate change particularly it needs to be higher than that that all people can do is you know talk about and, and maintain that political pressure but ultimately it has to because like you say it's it's complex like much more complex in a way and the things that um that, that feed into it you know it's, it's subsidies for fossil fuels and it's um mm, yeah 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 aid and it's you know kind of all these very complex stuff so it has to be the sort of onus on it has to be something that political leaders take the initiative of and the imperative of really mm. and uh yeah it has to be us that puts the puts the pressure on them yeah it feels impossible for me to impact the weather like you know when you sort of think oh god what can we do about it oh god well of course we can't impact the weather but actually we can because we've just shown that we can and we already have and we've caused all these changes and things. So as, a, as an individual, you said you sort of try to maintain this narrative of hope and things. How, how hopeful do you feel? How do you maintain a sense of hope? And have you made any changes, I guess, yourself on an individual level? That was three really big questions all in one. <laughs> on the kind of what, what can we do, uh, I think to influence the weather I think for me it's the um you know two of the things that I've mentioned already one is the getting involved in any citizen science mm. project that we can there's the whole phonology stuff you know nature's calendar but then there's also uh, things like the the BTOs I mentioned that that report on how climate change is impacting birds that's they do these um uh studies all over the country where it's all based on individual observations and we've got such a, a rich history of that in this country you know and such already millions of engaged people and actually that's a real tool in our armory and that's a real because it's still very new this science you know it's decades old really in terms of mm. demonstrating the impact of climate change on species you look at the BTO for example they're doing a they've been doing for a number of years of projects on cuckoos and following cuckoos along their migratory paths and working out different pressures along the way. And all those, all these things, if we can sort of help create these data sets, that can then be used as wider bodies of evidence to say to politicians, to say to corporations, you know, this is happening. What are you going to do about it? So things like um, they do the Great British Bird Watch, I think, don't they? Is that in January? Yeah, exactly, every year? Yeah. And we've just had plant life do every plant counts I think at the end they have this campaign called no mow may and this idea that you leave yeah. your lawns unmown and then you sort of can go out and plant and, and count the plant species and things and to be part of this sort of bigger citizen science project I think is great and also a brilliant way of getting the the kids and the schools and that kind of thing involved yeah, as well, exactly. isn't it? it's really fun you know um, and uh, kids love doing it I've, up in Sheffield uh, I've, uh, I've ran sort of nature writing projects with um, primary school and secondary school kids on uh, an, an estate near us and you know they love it doing those sorts of observations we followed the seasons for a whole year in fact and you know monitored what was different and what was kind of um, they were they compared their expectations against mm. reality and stuff 
and they created sort of artworks and poems and stories in response to that. And um, it was amazing how they responded to it because it's ingrained, you know, the weather's ingrained in us, even from a very, very young yes, age. Yes, yeah. Yeah, so I think it's something that's really by sort of build, helping build that citizen science, that's, our, that's the basis, you know, that's mm. creating the evidence that we can then use to, to hopefully affect um, greater change. And yeah. in doing that, you, you become more hopeful because you see the resilience of nature as well. As I say, there are winners and losers and you can see um, how some species might be doing better. And also you can sort of, it just reestablishes your connection with the seasons, I guess, to, 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 to sort of say it in a shorthand way. And um, as I write in the book, you know, we've, we've increasingly in the modern era, we've lost that connection with the seasons in all manner of ways. We, in our vocabulary, there's, mm. um, we had an amazing sort of diverse weather vocabulary that was very sort of regionally focused. We saw it recently in the, with the G7 in Cornwall when um, Boris Johnson and Joe Biden had a plan to go to St. Michael's Mount, uh, which is like this little sort of headland off the mainland. So they were going to go and do a, a photo up there. And uh, this foggy, misty weather came in the morning. The whole thing got um, canned because of it. And it was described locally as mizzle. And uh, people were sort of scratching their heads saying, you know, what's mizzle? And, uh, I've, got, the... I've got bedroom um, paint that colour. Our paint in our bedroom was mizzle. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's on a somewhere. They it for a colour, didn't they? <laughs> and it's ruta. It's a Cornish word. You find it elsewhere in the country as well. And it's that particular combination of uh, rain and drizzle and mm. cloud that sort of all kind of combines into this. I don't know what colour the paint is. I'm sure. <laughs> That's very nice. <laughs> And every, uh, every part of the country, you know, ha had or, or has or had these. Um, in East Anglia, there's words for um, exactly what it looks like when the mist rises from the sort oh, of okay, salt yeah. uh, on an early morning. In Sheffield, there's a word called snitters for uh, snow, when it's that kind of weird bit between not even sleep. It's gone one beyond sleep, but it's not quite snow yet. You get a lot of that in, yeah. in, in the hills of Sheffield. And uh, yeah, I mean, we have over uh, 50 words for rain, I think. In, oh, in, really? Which, uh, which is famously, maybe slightly uh, uh, erroneously, uh, always said as more than the Inuits have for snow. Oh, really? <laughs> and, uh, and we've lost a lot of these words. You know, in the modern era, you look at our weather forecasts now and they're done in very sort of basic terms, the mm. words that we use for them. We even started naming storms them, themselves, which is something I've moaned about uh, for a long time in my, in, in my weather column. And, and, and the sort of very language we use to talk about weather has changed. It's gone from that very sort of delicate, precise vernacular to something right. much more sort of attritional. You know, we talk about monster storms and thunder snow sorry, and hellish weather. Mm. And that kind of, you know, it's an us and them type mentality. And actually that's, symptomatic of a, a sort of loss of connection with the seasons that I think is uh, is crucial in terms of what we can do to you know help kind of restore more yeah, natural yeah. patterns of the year to sort of regain that understanding and by proxy that appreciation as well. It's interesting isn't it because it's kind of a reflection of you know this loss of connection more generally with nature that that we all became so much more aware of I think especially during that first lockdown but also like society feels like it's increasingly becoming very polarised, very binary, very us and them. And, and that, that's then reflected in our how we talk about the weather as well. It's really kind of interesting, isn't it? Yeah. 
And the weather can, in, in that sense, it can be a real, you know, unifying thing because, as you say, everything's everything's polarized now. Everything's mm. divided. You can't mention climate change without having an argument with someone. But yes. you can talk about the weather. You know, we can talk about the weather to anyone. You can just do it, and uh, it can be a way of, you know, talking about those changes and stuff. It can be a way of framing that more difficult conversation. I think, yeah, interestingly, some um, people in I've, um, in the Knackered Mums Eco Club, we, when we had this really sort of cold May and things like that, and people were saying things like about the weather and things, it can be a little in to have to go, well, yeah, this is climate change. This is how this is, you know, the weather is changing and things are changing and it can be a nice, you know, it can be a lead in sometimes to a conversation that we might otherwise kind of um, mm. back away from or not have. But um really aware of time and finally I just want to say so, you, so you've sort of written this book and and how do you feel at the end of uncovering all this stuff of finding out all this stuff of going you know traveling all around the, the country and the world sort of seeing how things are changing how has that left you feeling? It's a good question actually it, this is very different to my last book and actually anything that I normally write in that I, I don't tend to, to to write very personal stuff mm. necessarily and, uh, you know, I'll do much more sort of reporting, go out, tell other stories. And there's a sort of, there's a, 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 a kind of personal narrative throughout the book, which you'll know if you've read it. Mm, which is, yeah. um, my wife and I struggle to uh, conceive, which has been sort of ongoing uh, for the last couple of years and throughout the whole uh, process of, of writing the book as well. So it was kind of, it fitted into to, to the book and as, as a way of that sort of, narrative of things not doing what they should really. Mm. And it really in writing the book it really sort of helped she was very involved in it as well and and, and, and like me is very into nature and, and the natural world and we spend a lot of our time talking about it and out in our garden spotting the birds and stuff and uh in fact just before i uh, came onto this podcast we were out in the garden looking at the uh baby blue tits flying oh lovely yeah and they've got all this sort of lovely ruffled new plumage of uh, yeah their first sort of early weeks of flight and um yeah so I mean there was that kind of it and it was it was hard it was a hard book to write because of that but it really helped sort of process a lot of stuff going through it and help make sense of kind of wider anxieties about you know what's happening in the world and stuff so I feel ultimately like it's kind of, you know, uh, it's been a quite difficult process, but mm. feel um, really relieved that it's out there and really hope that it can help on a very sort of basic level. It can help other couples that are going through um, what what we are because it's mm. not an easy thing at all. And no. um, is, there's still quite a lot of taboo and shame around it as well. That both of us, you know, we had lots of conversations about whether or not it should even be included in the book. I never intended, mm. when I first pitched it as an idea to my publishers, it was never part of the original pitch and was very much a sort of personal decision to put it in there. Mm. And uh, so, yeah, I hope it can help people on that level and then hope on a wider level that it can, it can help people sort of make sense of these changes that we're all seeing over the course of any given year and that sort of gnawing at the back of the mind of, as, as you said at the start, Jen, you know, things aren't right, things aren't doing what they should, and providing some sort of context for that and some sort of, uh, if not a kind of, you know, it's not a sort of a, a kind of how-to book, it's not a sort of action plan mm. kind of book, but it's, it's um, you know, suggestions for where that might take us and what we might be able to do to 
uh, mitigate against some of the, the kind of worst impacts of that as well. I really want it to be a hopeful book. And I've said this in any other talk or interview I've done on it so far. I'm really, because I've always tried to have my weather columns as well, you know, maintain an air of hope throughout. Because I think if you lose hope, then you lose interest. And yeah. I tried throughout that. Um, I hope I've succeeded, but I've tried throughout that to, to, to make it like that. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Joe. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for thank you for writing the book. And it is absolutely fascinating. There's so many questions I wanted to ask you that we haven't got time to. I really wanted to talk to you about the little ice age and um, all those kinds of things as well. But it is absolutely a fascinating book. And I think anybody who has a, well, we all have this fascination with the weather. And but then I think to be able to sort of link it into the, the wider picture and how things are changing is, um, no, you've done a brilliant job. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. you wonderful sack of loveliness with me Jen Gale. Hopefully we've fired some neurons and we've got the old grey matter thinking about what changes you can make in your life this week to live that little bit more sustainably. Do let me know what that is, I love to hear about the changes that people are making, big or small, every single one counts. If you've enjoyed the show and I hope you have, do hop over to iTunes to leave a comment or a review and then the bots at iTunes will cotton on to just how awesome it is and it will show up in more people's feeds. Or at least I think that's how it works. Thanks so much for listening. I will catch you next time. <laughs>